This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Vorpig. We are back. That's right, Geek Gab for Saturday, June 25th, 2016, episode number 59. And believe it or not, it may shock you, those who have been listening to this show for some period of time, but we do not actually have today a set topic we have been contemplating for a long, long time. <clears throat> and so we are going to attempt, we, your erudite and talented hosts, are going to attempt to summon up all of the mental acuity and knowledge and personality we have to provide something interesting and informative. But before we do, John, how was your week? Oh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, spent the past couple of days uh, down with a cold, so uh, I've mostly been consuming old console games on my emulators and uh, and some Heroes of the Storm. When you say old console games, what kind of console games are you talking about? So I, I was a big, uh, I was a Sega Genesis kid. So I've been playing a lot of Shining Force, a little bit of Shining in the Darkness. Uh, you know those old school RPGs that we grew up on. Um, when I was when I played games in the Genesis era, and I never got a chance to actually own a Genesis myself, so I had to play games on other people's consoles. I was primarily limited to like the Sonic games. And so Sonic, Sonic 2, uh, Sonic CD, I really, really liked those games. Oh, they're among the best. Um, and I also hear you decided to subject yourself to a game I, I was kind of surprised that you decided to start playing again. Yeah, um, so the wife uh, picked up Diablo 3 for the PS4. Uh, it's, it's a new release on top of the story mode. Apparently they added... Uh, you know, a, a mode where you have lots of random generated dungeons. Um, but most importantly, it offers couch co-op. Now, for those of you in the audience who are not as lucky as I am, I'm married to someone who likes playing couch co-op games with me. Uh, so this is a special treat for us to hang out um, on the couch and uh, slaughter some monsters together, playing some Diablo 3. All right. That was one of the worst things that uh, became common, I think, in the 360 era, um, is when they stopped shipping games that you could do split-screen multiplayer. Yeah, uh, it's it's the worst. Uh, most, especially the big, you know, you want to say AAA games, like all the big games pretty much do online because you have to support online multiplayer. And the, the couch co-op is not supported well by most games uh, anymore. I say most big games. Um, you have to seek them out. In fact, th there's a website that you can go to if you're interested, and I haven't needed to look in a while, but there's a website called Co-Optimus, or Co-Optimus Prime, and uh, it is basically uh, a site for people who like those sorts of co-op uh, co games. But no, I mean, it's hard to get a game like Contra anymore. That's one of the things I always liked about the Gears of War series. <clears throat> 
my I got a brother who lives pretty far away, and he comes down occasionally, and we hang out. And one of the best things we can do while we're hanging out is we get to talk, but we also play video games at the same time. Gears of War, every single every single Gears of War has supported. Uh, you know, couch co-op. They've supported me sitting there with my brother, him playing one character, me playing the other, and just talking and joking and having fun while we go through doing uh, playing Gears of War. So we played through all of the Gears of War games, uh, including four. Just recently, he came down. We finished uh, Gears of War, or not four Gears of War, the new one on the Xbox. We played through the remake of Gears of War one on the Xbox One. So that was a lot of fun, um, just to have him there and 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 go through that. I, I love games that do that, and I like being able to do that with my brother. So, Brian, how was your week? Well, it's very convenient that John brought up the Sega Genesis because, much like you, I grew up Genesis-deprived, although even worse, because when I grew up, everyone in my grade school, everyone in my high school was just solid Nintendo fanboys, like just, just solid wall-to-wall. So... I only got to play the Genesis like uh, at kiosk displays at the store and stuff for like five minutes at a time while my mom was shopping. Well, just recently, my brother-in-law got a hold of a vintage Genesis. According to him, it's like one of the best models ever. So it's, it's like a classic model. And we hooked that sucker up and um, just dug into a library of classics. So we checked out Contra Hardcore... Disney's version of Aladdin, which was just a revelation. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but um, the old 8 and 16-bit consoles, right? My brother-in-law pointed this out. Because of how their sound chips were designed, each one had a very definite sound. You know, there was an NES sound and a Master System sound and a SNES and a Genesis sound that really... Because now, oh, you know, here's, you know, your CD quality, movie theater, THX quality audio. You know, the Xbox 360, the PS3, all the, the current generation stuff sounds the same. So that's an aspect of gaming we've kind of lost. And it was refreshing to get to experience just, uh, you know, a, a different audio environment in my gaming. Well, there have been some people who have made... Um... I don't know if they actually call them retro clones. That's a term from tabletop RPGs. But they make games that restrict themselves mostly to Nintendo-grade sprites, Nintendo-grade color palettes, but also the same range of notes that you could generate on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And so even though they were never on the Nintendo Entertainment System, and even though they've only ever been released on modern PCs in the last five years, years or so, they are uh, they play as if they had at one time been cartridges for the NES. Wow. You see that dead air, folks? That information just killed the conversation. <laughs> I tried to keep it going. This, this guy's an expert. I love it. This is why this is why we gab every week. We, we're, it's just an experiment to see how uh, Daddy Warpig is going to kill conversation this week. And the knowledge bomb is just coursing through my neuron. <laughs> well, more like more like slogging on account of this cold. We do hope you get well, by the way. Uh, I hope your week is, it goes better. So, Brian, you were going to ask me how my week went. How did your week go? 
It was dreadful. Oh. By which I mean, I sat through the first season plus two episodes of Penny Dreadful. Oh, what did he do there? Um, I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to say about this. But then again, I've said that before and, and gone on for 20 minutes, so I might have a whole lot to say about this. Let's start with the obvious stuff. Penny Dreadful has great actors in it. It has Eva Green, uh, who you may know from the first Casino Royale movie. She played the love interest, the foil for James Bond. I can't remember her character's name, but I'm sure Brian does. Vesper Lind. Vesper the Lind. Is, the name is forever etched into my memory because I attempted to cut the drink named after her with Trey Coke Zero. Never cut a Vesper with Trey Coke Zero. The, the more you know. Is it Vesper Lind? Oh, never mind. Okay, so Vesper Lind, um, Eva Green's character. It also has, coincidentally enough, an actual James Bond actor in there, that being Timothy Dalton, though he is perhaps more famous for his role in Hot Fuzz. <laughs> Timothy Dalton, who is an excellent actor, is also in there, and... Another American actor who I just couldn't place. And it's probably because he has a big beard. I wasn't expecting to talk about this today, so I didn't go through and, and spend a lot of time uh, looking up details. I'm sure, I'm utterly certain, even though I can't see it, that Brian is busily pulling up IMDb right now because he always does at this point in the conversation. Um, an American actor is also in this playing a gunslinger. Um, who is over in England. It's set in the Victorian era. It's set in the late 1800s. I'm sure they threw out an exact year, but but I didn't quite catch it. And the central, the kind of loose thesis is that many of the creatures, many of the monsters of Gothic fiction are sort of real and all exist at the same time in London. And by sort of real, I mean they're not real. For example, Dracula, there is a character named Mina, Mina Harker, but the Dracula, the vampire that appears in the series, is absolutely not the Bram Stoker Dracula. It's completely different in appearance, in origin, in nature, in vulnerabilities, and so on and so forth. So, yes, there's a vampire. Yes, there's a Mina but it is not Bram Stoker's Dracula. So they use some of the names of these traditional Gothic monsters, and they use them in this great melange of basically uh, this pastiche of Victorian Gothic fiction. So Penny Dreadful's work, uh, to the best of my knowledge, a lot like dime novels, only they were horror stories, published in the Victorian era, dealing with the grotesqueries of monster tales. And thus, Penny Dreadful is a horror series. And to talk about the good things about the series, they have good actors who deliver solid, credible performances. But at least the primary actors all deliver solid, credible performances, they are very convincing and very interesting. The uh, sets and costuming and stuff is absolutely impeccable. They, I don't know how they did it, but they went to great lengths to convincingly recreate Victorian-era England. Um, 
Because you were there. I mean, you Yes, Brian. I was going to say, because you were there, so you would, you would know. You could be a creative consultant. <laughs> um, and the horror elements are exceptionally well done and uh, horrifying. The people who made this know how to do good horror and delivered good, frightening horror. And uh, primarily what they delivered on, which most horror, if you're going to be good, has to deliver on, is the sense of menace, the sense of uh, ominous foreboding that they deliver on so many times. But at the same time, uh, in many of the scenes that kind of undercut that, I may explain that in a minute or two, um, but the horror, when they do delve into full-on horror, is very, very effective. They cover vampires. They cover um, Frankenstein and his monster. They cover demonic possession. They cover, in the beginning of the second series, witches, um, and so on and so forth. It's very, 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 very gothic. Uh, and the Gothic tales, as far as Gothic literature goes, dealt with deep, dark family secrets that tainted the bloodline and caused bad results for years, maybe generations, until these secrets, whatever these appalling secrets, these sins, were came to life and were thus expiated. But monsters were born of these dark secrets. So these are all the good things about the series, is it does horror, it does horror very, very well. Um, Dorian Gray makes an appearance, and although he's not central to the story, he does play, a, he's a secondary character, and he does play a, a critical plot role at one point, but mostly he's set dressing. Um, He's there primarily to be there because someone said, oh, we need to have Dorian Gray in here from, of course, the picture of Dorian Gray, if you're familiar with literature of the period. Um, so I have watched the first season, which is eight episodes. The second season has ten episodes. The third has nine. And the finale of the third ep uh, season, which just got broadcast a couple of weeks ago, is the series finale. They're done with the series. And after watching 10 episodes of this 27-episode series, I'm out. I'm done. I can't take any more. I don't want to take any more, and I don't want to watch the series anymore. Because here's the problem with Penny Dreadful, at least in my mind. Horror, real horror, true horror, requires innocence. It requires that there be an innocent who is threatened with a supernatural menace that cannot be fully explained by the laws of physics and that brave individuals have to risk their lives and their souls to combat this supernatural menace Without any assurance of victory, they have to rely on their faith, on their courage, without any assurance of victory, in defense of the innocent, in the hopes of wresting a victory from the jaws of evil. 
And the problem with Penny Dreadful is there are literally no innocents among any of the protagonists. All of the protagonists are range from revolting to vile and the TV series itself seems to delight in celebrating the fallen, the debased, the corrupt, in, in several scenes in the very first episode, at least literally uh, rotting society, rotting meat, maggots, things like that as, as, as visual uh, motifs representing the rot of society. It's also built on the whole, uh, you can't have Victorian characters or Western characters, which the United States Western genre, gunslingers and cowboys and that, happens at the exact same time as, as Victorians. Sherlock Holmes and Wild Bill Hickok are in fictitious literary sense. They exist in the same time period. The Old West and the Victorian era are the same time period in the very late 1800s. And you can't have characters from either of those time periods today in movies without also at the same time banging the white guilt gong. You can't have westerns without going on and on and on about how evil the white man was and how innocent and pure and noble the Indians are. And because there's an American in this movie and he's a gunslinger and he grew up in the West, uh, of course, they bang that gong pretty heavily for him, and because one of the main characters is a Victorian explorer who went to Africa, they bang that guilt gong quite heavily for him, and it gets tiresome. It gets tiring. Um, but the whole show has no character that is noble, no character that is honorable. Every character is debased and corrupt, and it just drags you down. It's depressing. And I just got sick of it. And it's a Showtime show. So, of course, there is uh, not omnipresent. This isn't as uh, omnipresent as Game of Thrones. But it is very, very near, not safe for work. And there are many episodes that have various forms of nudity and, and things like that. So And, of course, violence. It's a horror movie. There's violence. Or, oh, it's a horror series. So there's violence in there. So be forewarned if you're... If you don't like violence, you're not going to like the series. Not that it's constant violence. Again, it's, it's horror. It's punctuated violence. Horror, much like Westerns, requires you to have long periods of slow buildup and short periods of shocking violence. That's what horror is, and that's why the slasher genre is set off to the side. It's a subgenre of horror. It doesn't define the whole horror experience. So Penny Dreadful is actually truly dreadful. And that is a pun, yes, but it's also the truth. Because it's, it's revolting, and it celebrates the worst in humanity, and uh, the other thing about it is, and this is what is hilarious, they're dealing with the main character, Eva Green's character, who is a Catholic, and she is possessed, since she was a child, she's struggled with this demon who has existed around her and has, because of various immoral things she's done, occasionally taken control of her body, which, by the way, is an interesting thematic element. I thought that was interesting and well done in terms of themes, that you have a person who is bedeviled by a demon who gets possessed when they choose to indulge in wicked acts. That is interesting. 
But she goes to a priest at one time, and she asks this priest, please, for the love of God, can I get someone from the Vatican out here to exercise me? And the priest turns to her and says, well, you know, being possessed by a demon, and I'm going to quote this as best as I can, is like being touched by the back hand of God. Yes, that's an almost exact quote. Like being touched by the back end of God, it makes you special. And so what you have to consider before we exercise you is this. Do you want to be normal again? There's a Catholic uh -huh. priest saying this. To a person who is literally demonically possessed, to a person who literally floats in the air, who says strange secrets, who can tell the innermost secrets of everyone who touches her when she's possessed, who can fling people across the room, who can slam doors shut, whose body is tormented and tortured, who claws at the walls and scrapes at the walls until blood is pouring from her fingertips, who is in agony in her mind and in her body and in her soul, who is tormented by a demon. And what this Catholic priest asks her is do you want to be normal again? Because you can be a special snowflake being possessed by a demon, but if we exercise this demon, you'll be a regular Joe, just like all those other schmoes out there on the street. And I was thinking, oh, this is so painful. It's bleeding inside. I'm bleeding. Imagine, if Christ, imagine if Christ had asked that of any of the lepers or blind people who asked for healing. The show has no notion of religious faith. It has no notion even of the very existence of God or of characters who should believe in God, given the time period, at least notationally. At least Dr. Victor Frankenstein is an atheist. He's a materialist. And they, they did some interesting things with that, too. Victor Frankenstein is an atheist materialist who all of a sudden is confronted with a literal woman floating in the air because she's possessed by a demon. That was a great subplot. They did good things in the show. I'm not saying the entire show was badly done. I'm not saying the writers lacked skill. What they lacked was a notion of morality and the virtues of morality, what they lacked was the notion of faith, and without faith, specifically without religious faith, horror doesn't quite work. So okay. if you want to know what I would point to as being the quintessential mm -hmm. demonic possession movie, and it's not going to shock you, it's not going to surprise you, it's The Exorcist, because it is the best. Okay. Well said. Now, springboard off of that, have you read John C. Wright's recent essay on his blog, Hero Tales in the 21st Century? I read the original one. I didn't read his follow-up from yesterday. I didn't finish reading his follow-up from yesterday. Okay, same here. Now, so do you think the Penny Dreadful exemplifies what he's talking about? He said the same thing you did, that storytellers, whether in the medium of film or television, have never been better, yet they've also never been worse. They've never been more skilled, yet more corrupted by just this bleak nihilistic view of, of the world. Absolutely. Okay. Be because, again, what he said was that these are real textured characters with personality that you could believe in as real human beings, and all those things are true, except none of them have a notion of nobility or honor or virtue. 
exactly. Well, so now we know what we're dealing with. <laughs> so, so take it in yeah, small doses. I've, I've watched a third of the series, and I can't watch anymore. I refuse to watch anymore. I'm just, I'm done. Uh, I do have the uh, IMDb up here. And let's Chalmers, see. I think is the gunslinger's character's name. Charlene Gleason plays horror number one. David Warner plays Professor Abraham Van Helsing. Let's see here. So having those two characters uh, juxtaposed right next to each other pretty much says it all. Let's see. What was the they name of the actor? Him, by the way. Abraham yeah. Van Helsing, the primary vampire hunter, is completely wasted in this series. He's literally in two scenes, and they kill him off. It pissed me off so much. Oh, geez. What was the name of the actor who played the gunslinger again? That's what I'm asking you. I think oh, the gunslinger's the character's name was Chalmers. I'm not finding anyone named Chalmers on the list. Um, wasn't Rory Kinnear as John Clare, was it? No, John Clare is vampire, is uh, Frankenstein's monster. That's the nom de ah. plume. Oh, what about Josh Hartnett? Was it Josh Hartnett? Yes, is Josh Hartnett. Chandler? It's Chandler. Chandler. You were close. You. You're welcome. Now that you say Josh Hartnett, I recognize that that is who that was. It bothered, bothered me all week while I've been watching these. Well, happy to be of service. So Josh Hartnett, Timothy Dalton, Ava Green, all great actors, all well-known actors. I mean, you know, all in several may, uh, several large movies, but uh, and and they delivered great performances. It just they are lacking what horror needs. And so it's ultimately, it's not just hollow inside because I can handle hollow. It is actually revolting. Uh, I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. Nor should you have to. And, right. it's, and it's too bad. It's too bad. I want to go, like, answer your point about the innocence. It's too bad. Like, not only does a story need a protagonist that normal people can relate to, but like one of the themes of, uh, you know, Victorian life and Victorian fiction is how people were so supposedly, you know pent up like they they were reserved and everything and and so they weren't they weren't allowed to especially sexually uh, sexually speaking speaking they were all supposedly reserved and, and everything and so uh, that's like a good setting to have like an innocent person who's you know more or less straight like like a straight <laughs> you know what I mean so like a, a straight edge sort of person who's who's that sort of innocent, like why, why couldn't you have that type of character in the show? In in what should be the perfect setting for it? Yeah, exactly. It, with, uh, like you and Daddy Warpig were saying, constantly harping on um, the age of American and the Victorian age in England. It's that what's going on here is that the ideology that has dominated the arts and the institutions prides itself on being seen as subversive, okay? But what they don't realize is they've won. They are the dominant paradigm. They are the establishment. Yet they can't come to terms with that because of the cognitive dissonance. So they have to keep rebelling against ideas that held sway in their great-great-grandparents' time, if not before. So that's why they keep returning to beat up on Rudyard Kipling and... H.P. Lovecraft and Wild Bill Hickok as racist imperialists 
On my blog, hypocrites. Yeah. On my blog, I I link to videos about uh, you know the honest trailers series and things like that. Well, um, I did not realize how much Rudyard Kipling was out and out loathed. Uh, recently, and we discussed it on the show, we had a uh, the new Jungle Book came out. So people did several reviews or honest trailers or whatever of the classic Disney animated film, The Jungle Book. I did not realize how universally loathed that movie has become among uh, a certain class of people until they they just trashed it. They just went out of their way to say absolutely every mean, nasty, ugly, hateful thing about it because it offended them by its very existence. Not because there was anything bad in the book, but because it was a white man writing about Indian folklore, it offended them, so they had to trash it and destroy it. It, it was utterly bizarre to me because I turned a corner and suddenly walked into a virulent outpouring of hate that I had no idea existed. And that's why it can't, you just, normal people can't stomach it for long because it, it just gets so dull and repetitive. It's like, okay, okay, I know, I'm supposed to feel guilty about this. Give, give me more character and conflict. Give me more story. Please, let's just skip over the sermon that I've heard a million times. All right, any last thoughts, guys, before we go? That was pretty much mine. Nor at all. I'm out of thoughts. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Geek Gab for Saturday, June 25th, 2016, episode 59. We are, uh, by the way, folks, a big announcement. We are now available on the iTunes store. Geek Gab, if you go and search for Geek Gab, you can uh, subscribe to the podcast right in iTunes. And I have been given the link to uh, put us up in the Google Play Store. So that should be going up sometime this week, hopefully. Uh, we are also on SoundCloud, SoundCloud under, uh, surprisingly enough, GeekGab. And uh, as always, you can catch us on YouTube at is.gd slash GeekGab. That is is.good slash GeekGab. That will take you right to the YouTube page. We are signing off for today. But don't worry, don't fret, we will be back.